Welcome to Consider the Constitution, the podcast that cuts through the noise and provides insight into constitutional issues that directly affect every American. Hosted by Dr. Katie Crawford Lackey and featuring interviews with constitutional scholars, policy and subject matter experts, heritage professionals, and legal practitioners, we examine the rights and responsibilities of citizenship. Consider the Constitution is brought to you by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier. Hello and welcome back to Consider the Constitution. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Crawford Lackey, Director of the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's Montpelier. As we've discussed in past episodes, 1787 marked a watershed moment in American history with the drafting and signing of the U.S. Constitution. Now, significant challenges remained, however, and by the time George Washington stepped down from the presidency in 1797, hyper-partisanship flourished. Divided over the issues of the strength of the federal government, Federalists, such as John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, supported a strong central government, while Democratic Republicans like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison favored stronger state government. By 1799, political infighting reached such a dire point that George Washington, afraid that the country would be subject to violent political and legal turbulence, wrote to Patrick Henry asking him to come out of retirement and run for political office. What did such a contentious moment in American history mean for this young nation, and how did political leaders establish a more stable political system? Joining us to discuss these questions is Dr. John Ragasta, a historian at Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello and a fellow at Virginia Humanities. He has taught law and history at the University of Virginia, George Washington University, and Hamilton, Oberlin, and Randolph Colleges. Dr. Ragasta's newest book, For the People, for the Country, Patrick Henry's Final Political Battle, was released in August of 2023 by the University of Virginia Press. He is an award-winning author and frequent commentator. Dr. Ragasta holds a PhD and a JD from University of Virginia. Before returning to academia, he was a partner at Dewey Ballantyne LLP. Dr. Ragasta, welcome to Consider the Constitution. Thank you, Katie. It's a thrill to be here. And it's really an honor to have someone with this legal background as well as this background in history and politics as well. So I know this is going to be a very dynamic conversation today. And as we kind of start off, can you tell us a little bit more about what's happening in this young country? What's the dynamic between political leaders at the time? Well, as you've suggested, I mean, the 1790s, there's a lot more turmoil than we tend to remember. First of all, at about the same time George Washington is being inaugurated as president, we get the French Revolution breaking out. So there'll be wars in Europe almost constantly until 1815, Waterloo. And both sides, France and England, want the United States on their side. And then you have this hyper-partisanship in America. As political parties are developing, they really didn't understand that. And people start fighting based on which political party that they're in. And it becomes a major issue. Foreign policy and partisanship become the major issues of the 1790s. And obviously, we're here at James Madison's Montpelier, the fourth president. And you hail from Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home, which is just down the road. Where are these two men at the time in terms of their political ideology? 
Well, both Jefferson and Madison are moderate nationalists when the country gets started and Hamilton is starting to form a more powerful federal government. They're interested in making sure there are limits on the federal government. But both Jefferson and Madison, we need to remember, become heavily partisan by the end of the 1790s. They believe the country is really in a battle for the future of America. Jefferson starts believing there's going to be a monarchy under the Federalists. And that, by the way, is silly. I mean, the Federalists were not monarchists. But that's the extent of this partisanship. Now, I suggest, and I think we'll get to that, that Jefferson and Madison really realize they went too far and they pull back very considerably into the 1800s. And we referenced that in the late 1790s, we have George Washington stepping down from the presidency and John Adams is elected president. Now, how does his political party, his political affiliation differ from Washington and what does the partisan dynamic look like? Adams is a Federalist, and he believes in a strong federal government. He is not a monarchist in any sense, but he wants the government in, of course, New York and then Philadelphia to be running things. And this becomes an issue really with the French, oddly enough, our Revolutionary War allies, when he sends a peace delegation to France trying to make sure that we're not going to get pulled into those European wars. Washington had issued the neutrality proclamation. He realized we can't get in these wars. It'll destroy the country. Adams agrees with that. He wants a strong government, but don't get us involved in those European wars. So he sends a peace delegation to France. But the French insist on a bribe even to talk with the Americans. And this is referred to as the XYZ affair. And Adams is outraged. It's an insult to the new nation. It's an insult to our honor to be asked for a bribe, even to have negotiations. So he's going to go even further in wanting a strong government. We need to increase the military. They're literally worried about a war with France. It's called the Quasi-War, but people are getting shot. 330 American ships are seized on the high seas. And they're worried about Napoleon, a rising French general, literally invading America. So Adams increases the size of the army. Very important. And by the way, Alexander Hamilton's going to be in charge of the army. And then we get the Alien and Sedition Acts, which people have heard of and very much empowering the federal government and very dangerous. So Adams, upon taking this position as president, is faced with the situation with France and Britain. There's some uneasiness. And then it sounds like things, this relationship with France kind of goes south. And the response is these acts that you referenced. What was so significant about the Alien and Sedition Acts? Well, and keep in mind, taking half a step back, that the Jeffersonians, the Democratic Republicans, are friends of France. They're saying, why are we, why are we worried about a war with France? And Adams is saying, we had that XYZ affair. We're worried about a war. These acts, though, and everybody's heard of them, but we historians have tended to underestimate the significance of these. The Alien Acts gave the president the authority to deport any alien that he thought was dangerous. No court procedures, no due process, just ship them out of the country. But even worse, we have the Sedition Act. The Sedition Act literally makes it illegal to criticize the president or the Congress of the United States. Literally, you can go to jail. Now, I tell people, by the way, you can say whatever you want about the vice president, Thomas Jefferson. You can say whatever you want about Jefferson. And historians told us for years, if you pick up a book about the Alien and Sedition Act, they said 14 prosecutions, 10 people actually convicted. And that sounds bad, but not like a crisis. 
some new historic work has shown that grossly underestimated. There were over 40 indictments, over 100 people were covered by those indictments, and they were targeting newspaper editors. They were targeting the opposition newspapers, trying to silence the Jeffersonians, the Democratic Republicans. Thomas Jefferson refers to this as a reign of witches. Jefferson has a way with words, a reign of witches. But he's right. If you can literally throw in jail the political opposition, people who criticize the government, how can you have a democracy? So there's two points that I think are very significant in what you just mentioned. One is this partisanship. You referenced that the Democratic Republicans aren't really worried about the situation with France. However, that's a very different story for Adams and his party, the Federalists. And our listeners will know from past episodes that we had the Bill of Rights, which includes the First Amendment, free speech, free press. That was ratified in 1791. So how did we get to this point just less than 10 years later where basically free speech and press is being infringed upon? Well, Katie, both of those points are critical. And I want to touch on the hyperpartisanship to give you an example. There's actually quoted in the newspaper a Virginia militia officer who says, if France does invade, I will take my troops to the French banner rather than to the stars and stripes carried by a political opponent. I mean, that's the level of hyperpartisanship, open treason saying, you know, I'm going to go with them because they're with the other party. But you're right that it, from our perspective, clear violation of the First Amendment, clear violation of free speech. That doctrine is being developed at that time. It's changing. In Britain, free speech meant no prior restraint. You can print what you want, but we can throw you in jail for it after the fact. That was free speech in Britain at the time. And our more expansive American idea of free speech is really developing. So Jefferson and Madison clearly thought this was a violation of the First Amendment, but It wasn't completely crazy at the time for Adams to say, well, you you can do this under the First Amendment. So we can't look at it from our lens today, where obviously we think of the First Amendment as providing a lot more protection. But these political leaders are just trying to figure all of this out still, it sounds like. Well, that's the critical point. They're trying to figure it out and they just don't understand. So one of the questions I address in my book is, well, why didn't Jefferson and Madison just bring a lawsuit? Have it declared unconstitutional. Throw it out. Throw it out. It's a terrible law. It's unconstitutional. And that's what we would do today. But at the time, five of the six Supreme Court justices had sat on Sedition Act cases when they were riding circuit around the country and never, never seen any problem with it. So it just wasn't as obvious to them that you could simply go to court and have it thrown out. Feeding back into this hyperpartisan, it's going to be a partisan battle. I want to dig a little deeper into that. So in terms of what the Democratic Republicans, Jefferson, Madison, who disagree with these acts, their options are, sounds like they can't go to the courts. What else can they do? Well, the question of options is great, Katie. So no, they can't go to the courts. That would be easy. Second option, uh, maybe the first option, you win the next election, right? Kick the bums out, change the law. That's what you're supposed to do in a democracy when you don't like what the government's doing. But Jefferson looks at that and says, you know, if they're throwing our newspaper editors in jail because they're criticizing the government, can we really run a free election? And furthermore, because of this quasi-war with France, John Adams becomes personally popular, probably for the first and only time in his life. 
And he's running around the Capitol with a sword. He's wearing a sword to events to show that he's the commander in chief. Adams is popular. So Jefferson and Madison say, well, we're worried. Now, can we, with hindsight, we know what's going to happen, but we're worried we can't win an election because they're throwing our people in jail. And it wouldn't be the first and only time that foreign policy concerns played a part in domestic politics. So Jefferson lands on a third option, and it turns out to be a very bad option, but he lands on a third option. He says, we're going to turn to the states. We're going to use the states against the federal government. Now, to some extent, this had been done before. Patrick Henry, of all people, had led the effort in Virginia to oppose Alexander Hamilton's financial system. He thought it was unconstitutional, and Virginia protested to the federal government and asked their congressman to get rid of the Hamilton financial program. But Jefferson says, we're going to do far more than protest. So he drafts the Kentucky resolutions. Madison drafts the Virginia resolutions. Kentucky resolutions are the much stronger. And those resolutions basically say two things. The first is that the Constitution is merely a compact of independent states. And by the way, which is what Governor Abbott is saying these days in Texas. This is the theory he's relying on. Jefferson invents it. Uh, It says it's a compact of independent states. And secondly, that means an individual state can nullify, that's the word Jefferson uses, nullify a federal law that it believes to be unconstitutional. Well, if this is true, if in fact it's a compact of independent states, you're going to have different laws in each state. You're going to have states fighting states, states fighting the federal government. You're going to have states have the right to secede from a compact. They knew what a compact was. States could secede. And so the newspapers start to print literally headlines in newspapers all over the country. Civil War. You started out with George Washington asking Patrick. This is why George Washington in retirement writes Patrick Henry and says the country is on the brink of dissolution if and he doesn't name names, but they know who they're talking about. If Jefferson and Madison continue with this crazy, extreme states rights position. Was Washington's concerns addressed? With Patrick Henry? Yes. In fact, Henry and Washington are very close through most of their political careers. The exception being George Washington was one of the major advocates of the U.S. Constitution. He's a Federalist. Patrick Henry was the leading anti-Federalist. He had opposed ratification of the Constitution. He said the Constitution will be too powerful, too distant from the people. They will interfere with your rights. So to your question, it's fascinating. George Washington, the leading Federalist, is writing the leading anti-Federalist saying they're going to destroy the country with this radical states' rights. Henry, in many respects, is the godfather of the states' rights movement. He always said the states need to be powerful, the states need to be active. So when Henry responds to Washington and comes out of retirement, he was in retirement, and says, I will run for office, I agree with you. It's remarkable. And it's this is a lesson for us. It's, it's about being a loyal opposition. How can you disagree with government, but yet still be loyal to the Constitution, to the government? And so Henry makes this final political speech at Charlotte Courthouse. It's remarkable. He basically reminds the audience, thousands of people gather, and he reminds them, I oppose the Constitution. You remember that? I oppose the Constitution. I told you this was going to happen. I told you the federal government would be too strong. I told you they would interfere with your rights. But we agreed. I didn't agree, but we, the people, agreed. And he makes, I think, one of the most remarkable, and I want to get it right, one of the most remarkable statements from one of the founders. He says, if we can't live within the Constitution that we agreed to, 
You may bid adieu forever to representative government. You can never exchange the present government but for a monarchy. So he says, go to the ballot box. You don't like this Alien and Sedition Act? Go to the ballot box. Vote them out. You don't make up constitutional authorities and insist that you're going to ignore federal law because you don't like it. And for Patrick Henry to be saying this, that's critical. The, the leading anti-federalist saying that's you just can't run a government that way. I think equally astounding is how Jefferson and Madison could end up in this position where they're almost arguing against all the work they did to create this strong central government. Absolutely. And Katie, it's a great point because Madison realizes it. And it's not uncommon. You will appreciate being here in Montpelier. Madison oftentimes is saying, well, Mr. Jefferson, maybe we ought to rethink that idea. Eight days after the Virginia resolutions are adopted. Okay. And Madison wrote the Virginia resolutions. And they're much weaker than the Kentucky resolutions. Eight days later, he's writing Thomas Jefferson saying, maybe we went too far. In the act of complaining about this unconstitutional sedition act, and again, I think we would agree it's unconstitutional, but in the act of complaining about the government usurping our rights, we are usurping the power of the federal government. And it's a remarkable letter uh, because if you think about it, the Kentucky resolutions are much worse. And Madison is saying, gee, Mr. Jefferson, maybe even my weaker version went too far. And I believe, and I argue this in the book, that Madison and Jefferson really pull back and they realize they participated in the hyperpartisanship. They participated in these battles of the 1790s and they realized we almost destroyed the country. We almost drove the country off the cliff. So I tell people, reread Jefferson's first inaugural address in that light. And it takes on a very different voice. It's Jefferson really pulling back and saying, you know, I know we've been having these partisan battles, but what unites us is more important than what divides us. He says in that inaugural address, I I understand. I understand why the Federalists were worried about the French. Remarkable statement for Jefferson to make. Um, The famous line, we are all Federalists. We are all Republicans. But he says we must unite for the common good. Yeah, we've had partisan battles, but we really share our commitment to the Constitution. So Jefferson has been accused for 200 years of being a hypocrite as a president. He's accused of being a hypocrite for multiple reasons. But as president, because he doesn't do as president the things he had been saying he would do in the 1790s. And at the time and today, historians say, well, he's a hypocrite. I think there's something else going on. I I think that The country's new. They're still trying to figure it out. And he and Madison realize you can go too far with this partisanship. You can destroy the country with these partisan battles. And so as we were talking about this situation, this really dire situation with Jefferson and Madison and the steps they take in writing the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, the next step or the next chapter of the story, it sounds like They checked themselves and it led to perhaps a little bit better relations between the parties. Is that fair to say? Yes. And of course, the Jeffersonians, the the Democratic Republicans become basically almost a single party then under Jefferson. I mean, Jeffersonians control the White House for years after that. You have Jefferson and then Madison and then Monroe, John Quincy Adams, who's even pretends to be a Jeffersonian. But I think it's generally a recognition that these partisan battles have gone too far. And I think this is why Madison is so important in this. Jefferson 
tends to have big ideas. And sometimes those big ideas get carried away. Madison's the one who really realizes, okay, the first rule, and Jefferson talks about this as an inaugural address, first rule in a democracy, the majority rules. The second rule, the minority has to accept the first rule. And that, you know, that's how they run the country then for the next 30, 40 years, the Democratic Republicans. Much of what we're discussing, I think, really resonates in terms of our political climate today. What are some of the key lessons or takeaways from this situation that was happening in the 1790s, and how can we apply that today? We shouldn't lose sight of the first crisis, the one that Jefferson identifies as a reign of witches, because he's right about that. If you don't have a free press, if the press is not able to criticize the government, you can't have a democracy, you can't have a functioning republic. And so that's a critical lesson. And we don't see that kind of thing again. The Sedition Act expires by its own terms. And uh, not until we get to World War One, and there are cases of us prosecuting people who criticize the government during World War One, especially. But that lesson, uh, and that's certainly a lesson for today. But then I have two other things. The second lesson is the Patrick Henry lesson. Here's this guy that's the leading anti-federalist, the second most popular politician in Virginia, next to George Washington. He was more popular than Jefferson. For him to come out of retirement and to say. Yes, I oppose the Constitution, but we all agreed. And, you know, Americans don't like to lose and they don't like to lose politically. But I think Henry is saying, you know, in a democracy, sometimes you're going to lose the vote. You're going to vote for the party that loses and you've got to deal with that. And then that very much leads. uh, So that's what is a loyal opposition. And and then that leads, as I said, to this third idea that, yeah, the majority rules. But the minority has to live with that, at least till the next election. That's your opportunity. Thank you so much for laying it out so clearly. This is a moment in early American history where, yes, these political leaders are trying to navigate this environment under a new constitution. But the idea that there's this social compact that we, the people, agreed to this. And yes, there are avenues within the system that we can pursue in order to address what we think is wrong. But it's important to work within the system. And again, as you said, Patrick Henry is a great example of that. And this kind of unity that ensues after Jefferson and Madison check themselves and recognize their mistakes and and try to do better in the future is one that is an important lesson for us to remember today. So thank you for reminding us and sharing these stories with us today. It was a real honor to have you here. Well, Katie, it's been my pleasure. And thank you for the opportunity and good luck with the podcast. It's a wonderful program you've run. And I want to thank all of our listeners. I hope you'll share the show with your family and friends. And please join us in two weeks for our next episode on Consider the Constitution. 